TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. They are delighted every time you return home. And who is like that? I'm more in tune with the planet now because I'm living the way people lived thousands of years ago. Are you afraid of dying? No, because I've already rehearsed it. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, to mark the end of 2023, we're going to hear excerpts from some of the best interviews with writers that Debbie did in the past year. There's something about just listening, which they seem to do. The ideas come through the artist, not from the artist. I realized that I had a future again. I interview a lot of writers on Design Matters. Fiction writers, nonfiction writers, design writers, comic book writers, journalists, you name it. They often come on the podcast to talk about a recent book, and I use the occasion to not only talk about that book, but also to talk about who the writers were before they wrote that book. Books, after all, don't come from nowhere, and I like to get a sense of what went into their creation. In this end-of-the-year episode, I'm going to play three excerpts from interviews I did with three very different writers in 2023. First up is one of my favorites, Alexandra Horowitz. She's a professor of psychology at Barnard College, and she's written a whole shelf of books about dog cognition, including her latest, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Before she started studying dogs, she did research on the white rhinoceros. Well, the white rhinoceros is a fantastic species. You know, we, uh, <laughs> I didn't know much about them at all, just except for that they were an African species. There were fewer, many fewer of them than there used to be. They're not endangered, I think, anymore. They are matrilineal, so they live in groups of women and... The males, who are usually smaller than the females, only approach when they've received kind of advanced word that a female is ready to mate. Otherwise, they'll just get beat up. 
Yeah, they're just, they're really not interested in his company at all. They don't hang out with the males at all. They, But they'll endure his company if they're interested in mating. And the way they leave this communication that they're interested in mating is through their dung, actually. And they leave these kind of huge heaps of dung. That's They're like, um, you know, bulletin boards with all the information about all the rhinoceros. Uh, it has all the health and mating, reproductive status, etc., they're basically leaving a message. Once they leave, the male can go and sniff and see if he can pursue one of the females. So we're basically looking at how does their behavior relate to their endocrinology and that people would go in and gather samples, check their hormone levels, and then we would try to sync it with their behavior. So it was the first time that I'd really looked at behavior of an animal over a long period closely where you start to think about them as individuals who have their own life histories. And you also think about the fact that their individual life history, while having interesting analogs to a human life history, you know, is full of its own complexities, some of which I might not be aware of. For instance, I didn't use my sense of smell to do much in my life, particularly, certainly not to find out information about other people, except for maybe accidentally, and even then, really inadvertently. So it made me kind of aware of the types of things that would later drive my research, like the looking closely, looking over a long period of time, the importance of sort of individual animals, and the perceptual world of non-human animals, which is in so many ways much more expansive than ours. You also spent many hours at the local dog parks and beaches with your famous dog, Pumpernickel, where <laughs> you began to see the interplay between him and other dogs in entirely new ways. And you wrote this about the experience, and I found it so moving and so vivid that I'd really like to share it verbatim with our listeners. It's about a paragraph, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Where I once saw and smiled at play between Pumpernickel and the local bull terrier, I now saw a complex dance requiring mutual cooperation, split-second communications, and assessment of each other's abilities and desires. The slightest turn of a head or the point of a nose now seemed directed meaningful. I saw dogs whose owners did not understand a single thing their dogs were doing. I saw dogs too clever for their playmates. I saw people misreading canine requests as confusion and delight as aggression. I began bringing a video camera with us and taping our outings at the parks. At home, I watched the tapes of dogs playing with dogs, of people ball and frisbee tossing to their dogs, tapes of chasing, fighting, petting, running, barking. With new sensitivity to the possible richness of social interactions in an entirely non-linguistic world, all of these once ordinary activities now seem to me to be an untapped font of information. When I began watching the videos in extremely slow motion playback, I saw behaviors I'd never seen in years of living with dogs. Examined closely, simple play frolicking between two dogs became a dizzying series of synchronous behaviors, active role swapping, variations on communicative displays, flexible adaptation to others' attention, and rapid movement between highly diverse play acts. 
What I was seeing were snapshots of the minds of the dogs, visible in the ways they communicated with each other and tried to communicate with the people around them, and two, in the way they interpreted other dogs and people's actions. I never saw Pumpernickel or any dog the same way again. Hmm. It's like one of those Proustian moments for me. I just love that whole vivid experience. I saw it so deeply and with such detail. And it felt like in that experience, your whole life changed. It really did. It's the thing that's right in front of you that you've never seen. And in fact, that way of looking has infected me in other directions as well. But just with dogs, just with this one subject, it's profound to see that something you thought you knew had all this dimensionality, which was invisible, and which in fact makes it run, makes it work, and is essential to its existence. So, you know, thank you for highlighting that. It was profound for me, and it changed the course of, it It created my professional career as well. How did the experiences with Pumpernickel translate into even considering this line of research? Before your work, there really wasn't a cognitive science of dogs. Yeah, I was sensitive to and interested in dogs. You know, I was a dog lover. I was like all the people who were dog lovers. Identical, right? I just was interested in and fascinated by dogs, had the same types of generalized questions that I a lot of people direct toward me now. You know, what is my dog thinking? What does my dog know about me? I had those questions, but I just didn't think of them as scientific questions that were answerable, potentially. Oh, Alexandra, I had those questions too, but hired a dog whisperer (laughs) just to give you a difference in sort of life path. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's a different avenue. Uh, So I I think that that was um, meaningful to me, not just with her. Right, but in sort of in every direction. Why do we love dogs so much? Their responsiveness to us, I think, is central to it. They are not unique as domesticated animals, not unique as animals who are tameable or friendly or have the cognitive capacities they do, but they are really unusual in their responsiveness to us, their interest in us, their agreeableness with us, and their seeming ability to read us so well. And frankly, we like that a lot. That's a kind of responsiveness that, you know, I think I look for in other human beings, this kind of sensitivity that dogs seem to come with automatically, right? I think that's the center of it. I think having now had dogs for most of my adult life, I've seen how for me and for others, they sort of are able to crack hardened hearts open in a way that sometimes people, other people can't. And and I don't know if it's because of the trust or the unconditional sense of, of love that they provide us, um, but I'm sure you've witnessed that over and over again. Yeah. And when you say unconditional, I think that's such an interesting observation, right? That you yell at a dog, get angry at a dog, accidentally step on a dog, and you turn around and they're completely ready to start over again. And that's maybe sometimes not to their benefit, but they are delighted every time you return home. And who is like that? Mm. Who, (laughs) Who in our lives is like that? And I think another element of this, you know, being able to crack someone's veneer, for instance, 
is, I've been thinking about it a lot because I, I worked in words for such a long time, is there wordlessness? You know, we a lot of people like to voice what their dogs are saying, and that uh, that's a sort of way of animating the quiet member of this conversation that you always feel like you're having with your dog. But really, I think it, it would be alarming if they said anything out, <laughs> out loud. There's something about just listening, which they seem to do. Alexandra Horowitz. Rick Rubin is one of the most celebrated record producers of our time. He's won nine Grammy Awards, and over the years, he has produced a who's who of musical artists, from Adele to Jay-Z. Early in 2023, he surprised everyone by publishing a book, not about musicians or producing music, but about the process of being a creative person. Titled The Creative Act, A Way of Being, it's a meditation on how creativity works, and when I spoke with him from Costa Rica, where he has a home, we got right to it. In the same way that the seasons change, who orchestrates that change? Who orchestrates the bee moving from flower to flower? It's all instinctual. All these things happen on an instinctual basis, and if we're in tune we can be guided in the same way that a hummingbird is guided to build a nest. The same way we can get back to our true connection if we, if we get out of our own way. If we try to make it, this is the way I think it, that's not what I'm talking about. It's if you're in tune with the planet, and you're playing your role in this giant orchestra that's going on all the time. And that's the culture moving forward. That's everything we see. Everything we get to see is either natural or added to the nature by us. And I'm arguing that we are an extension of nature, nature continuing to unfold. We're part of it. Now, we can be part of it in a way that upsets nature. And nature wouldn't do that. I, I remember I was, in, I was in Hawaii years and years ago, and I was listening to a public radio station there, and there was an old, a very old Hawaiian man being interviewed. Maybe, he might have even been reading poetry. It was very beautiful. And one of the things that he said was, when I look at my island, when I go in the boat and I look back at my island, I see all the things that man made on my island. And none of them make it more beautiful than it was before. None of them make it better. The book is arguing that if we're really in tune with what's going on, we would be making things that make the world a better place. We can't help but do it. And when I say a better place, maybe I say more in balance because so much of it is balance. You know, there, there are, nature gives us terrible storms that wipe out communities. That's all part of this balance. If we can tap into this energy that's happening all around us at all times, it's clear what our, what our choices will be. It's almost as if it happens for us. If we really stay still, really tune in, um, in the early days 
of my career, I used to live very against the planet. I would stay up all night, which is not a natural thing to do. I lived in, in very controlled spaces that were man-made spaces where I didn't have much connection to nature. And I found since living in more um, outdoor spaces, spending much more time outside, I'm more in tune with the planet now because I'm living the way people lived you know, thousands of years ago. And I think that that helps, that helps me tune into this energy. And I'm not suggesting that's for everybody. There are degrees of all of this. But I think if we can tune in to what's going on around us, it becomes clear what our part is. The whole notion of tuning in feels sort of cosmic and magical to some degree. And you go on to state in the book, if you have an idea you're excited about and you don't bring it to life, it's not uncommon for the idea to find its voice through another maker. This isn't because the other artists stole your idea, but because the idea's time has come. And I'm wondering if you think ideas come through the artist rather than from the artist. Yes, the ideas come through the artist, not from the artist. The artist may make connections between things, but the, the grand vision doesn't come from us. And I think the more artists you speak to, they would all tell you this. The ones who really have done it consistently over a period of time tend to get more mystical. Yeah. Just through the reality of their experience. It just happens through when you see something remarkable happen over and over again that you can't explain, you start to realize, well, that's how it is because it happens all the time. And once you let your guard down because you see it happen all the time, you can welcome it. You can put yourself in a position to allow it to happen more often. This reminds me of something Elizabeth Gilbert said about the American poet Ruth Stone, and I wanted to read you verbatim what she said because I, I think it's really a perfect example of being of tuning in and what happens when you do that. So she stated that Ruth Stone, who's now in her 90s, has been a poet her entire life and described when she was growing up in rural Virginia, she'd be out walking in the fields, working in the fields, and she would feel and hear a poem coming at her from over the landscape. She said it was like a thunderous train of air, and it would come barreling down at her over the landscape, and she felt it coming because it would shake the earth under her feet, and she knew that she had only one thing to do at that point, and that was to, in her words, run like hell. And she would run like hell to the house, and she'd be getting chased by this poem. And the whole deal was that she had to get to a piece of paper and a pencil fast enough so that when it thundered through her, she could collect it and grab it on the page. And other times, she wouldn't be fast enough, so she'd be running and running, and she wouldn't get to the house, and the poem would barrel through her, and she would miss it. And she said it would continue on across the landscape, looking as she put it for another poet and then there were those moments where she would 
almost miss it. She's running to the house and she's looking for the paper and the poem passes through her and she grabs a pencil just as it's going through her and she would reach out with her other hand and she would catch it and she would catch the poem by its tail and she would pull it backwards into her body as she was transcribing on the page. And in these instances, the poem would come up on the page perfect and intact but backwards from the last wow. word to the first. Wow. So cool. I love it. Beautiful. I, I, I was reading your book and I'm like, oh my God, Ruth Stone, that's what happens. And then I also read that Tom Waits would do that. He'd be driving in the car and if he couldn't get to where he was going fast enough, he'd be like, don't you see I'm driving? <laughs> Beautiful. What's, what's interesting about that story, about both of those stories, is not just the cosmic transmission aspect, it also tells us the commitment that the artist needs to make that when it's happening, we have to be present for it. We must be present for it because it's coming and it's going. And I talk a lot in the book about it being, this is a, there's a section of the book called uh, an area of thought 24 seven. And it's about the commitment it's funny because we say it's not really about us. Yes, it's not really about us. But if we're not actively participating with all of ourselves at all times, it doesn't happen. Right. So it takes a tremendous work ethic and commitment to wait for lightning to strike, to wait for it to happen. And then there's another part in the book where we talk about you can't just wait for that. So you have to show up to work either way. Yeah. And sometimes through that experimentation process, before the lightning strikes, we still have to show up at whether it's our recording studio or our table to write, where we're going to sculpt or our design table, whatever it is, we show up and we show up on a regular enough basis that hopefully, hopefully the lightning will strike more often. And if it doesn't, we're going to be so much better at crafting that when it does strike, we're going to be able to make a much more beautiful thing using the information that comes through. Rick Rubin. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present, but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
About 30 years ago, Kevin Kelly co-founded Wired Magazine, where he currently holds the title of Senior Maverick. He writes books about technology and the future, and he's extremely optimistic about both. His latest is Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. When he was a young man, Kevin Kelly had a profound religious experience in Jerusalem, which, of course, I asked him about. I don't know if I can explain it. Yeah, that's but, a good point. But, uh, <laughs> I can tell you um, the the short version is the, is that I um, was working in Iran during the Khomeini Revolution, got kicked out, went to Jerusalem to photograph Easter, and had a conversion experience in Easter, where I really believed that Jesus was the cosmic Jesus. Cosmic Jesus, again, taking that view of the Godhood and understanding that when you have a free will, when we, when we're going to discover this ourselves when we make robots that have free wills, is that when a robot that you made decides to do harm, the question is, what's the, what are the consequences? Should the robot absorb it? Does the maker of the robot have any degree of Capability and and how do we satisfy the need for justice while still also be loving? And for me, the answer is that the Godhood, the Creator, takes on the the penalty itself. It absorbs the penalty in part in order to relieve the being with free will from eternal guilt and and the burden of having to suffer the consequences of doing harm. And so for me, that's the cosmic Jesus. And so I, that everybody is forgiven. Right. And so that set me off on a course of an assignment that I believe I got, which was to try and live as if I was going to die in six months. And that set me off on a different course where I kind of graduated from photographing and, and traveling, and I was um, trying to prepare for this short time of no regrets and trying to, to deal with things to, to, to be ready. And, and I, what I didn't understand at the time, but did later on, was this was providing me with a rebirth experience where I actually went through the whole thing and then didn't die but it was reborn in a very, very visceral, tangible way that I could not have believed. And so um, what was interesting about having six months to live was that I could only do that by denying a future. So every day I was giving up the future I was not thinking about. I wasn't taking photographs because what's the point? You're not going to be there in six months. And that restricting of the future was another lesson because when I came out of it on the other side, I realized that having a future was one of the most human things, that it was really necessary for our own humanity was to have some something in the front of us. And that if you take that away, you take away a lot of humanity. Yeah, I mean, that's really the only thing that differentiates us from other species is our ability to imagine right. a scenario or a future. So I became much more interested in thinking about the future after that. It's interesting because you had this sense that you were going to die, and it does seem like that six months was 
a, a death of sorts in that you were rebirthed in a new way, right, right. Think, thinking about time in an entirely new way. Did you have a sense that this was more a metaphysical death or did you believe that it was going to be a physical death and that you might get hit by a car or be involved in some right. tragic accident and no longer exist? I, I was taking it very literally that, that I was preparing yeah. for the complete death where I would go to sleep that night and not wake up. That was the assignment to me was to prepare in every way as if this was a complete physical reality. So I, I, I was acting as much as I could to be responsible and taking that seriously in every respect. So when I went to bed that night, I was prepared to physically die. Initially, you thought that with six months to live, you would climb Mount Everest or go scuba diving or get in a speedboat and see right. how fast you could go. That would be the natural inclination. You live life to the fullest. But in fact, I surprised myself because I wanted to see my parents and my brothers and sisters and do ordinary things. Yeah, I, I, that was a surprise to me. You found the ordinary quite exotic when you went back. Yes. And that's, I think, part of the marvel of, of life is finding the extraordinary in the ordinary and finding the ordinary in the extraordinary. And I think that was a gift. You wrote about what you did when you were back home with your parents. You said that you helped around the house, you uh -huh. dug up shrubs, you worked on a deck, you moved furniture, you washed dishes. Right. <laughs> were, you, were you bored doing those things or were you feeling very fulfilled by doing those things? I was a little bored. Because after three months, I got on a bicycle and rode across the U.S. to visit my brothers right. and sisters. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, 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 I get bored pretty easily. You returned home again on October 31st from a 5,000-mile right. trek on your bicycle to visit your siblings. Nobody knew this entire time that you were in a race against the clock, so to speak, right. and that you were expecting to die on November 1st, but mm -hmm. you didn't die. Did that surprise you when you woke up on November 1st? Did you think, oh, 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 oh. like, Groundhog Day? You know, no, did you, no, I, did I was you... saying that was, I, I literally felt like I was being born. When I was opening up my eyes, the experience from the visceral, from my whole body was like a, a, a gift, like being born. Because as I was opening my eyes and coming to, I realized that I had a future again, that I had everything. And so it was, yes, a surprise in that sense. It was, I mean, surprise is not the exact word. It was a, a gratitude. It was an appreciation. It was like, what if you were conscious and you were born, what would that feeling be? What, how would you describe that? If you, were, if you were, instead of being born as a baby, you were born as an adult, there would be an exhilaration that you would feel. And that's what I felt. You had your religious epiphany when you were 27, mm. and you thought you only had six months to live. Mm -hmm. After you realized that you were not going to die, you created a countdown clock on your computer to count down the days you had left after figuring out your anticipated life expectancy based on some Medicaid actuary charts. Right. That told you that your new projected age of 
dying was going to be 78.68 years old. Uh Uh-huh. I believe you're now 70? 71. 71. According to the date duration calendar, you figured out the estimated last day of your life was now going to be January 1st, 2031. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that day now? Well, so the thing about it is, the good news is that my longevity has been increasing. So now when I look at the, the tables, I get a, it's like 80, 81 or something. So, so and, and there's also something about it. The longer you live, the higher your chances of living longer. And then there's medical advances. And so in some senses, in the last couple of years, I haven't been losing any dates. I've actually been able to maintain the same 5,080 days. And so that's been a bonus, some gravy. But I, I, I think I, I run it just to sharpen my commitment and my focus during during the day because each day is, if I have 5,080 days to do everything on my list, then is doing what I am right now, is it what I want to do? And the answer is, in this case, yes, absolutely. But it helps me focus in that way. I went and did the same thing after reading okay. about you doing this. I have about 10,000 days left. There you go. I am projected to live until 91. Okay. Which means only two-thirds of my life is over. I have another big chunk, <laughs> a big third. What's interesting is that my grandmother lived till 91, yeah. and her sister lived till 91. My mother is currently 81, still going. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of feeling good about that. And so the 10,000 days is something now I'm thinking about. Well, see, you know, you may say 10,000 days a lot, but to me, (laughs) for all the things I want to do, even 10,000 days doesn't seem like enough. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. Are you afraid of dying? No, because I've already rehearsed it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not looking forward to it at all. I don't want it, but I'm not afraid of it. Are you afraid of anything? I'm afraid of being wrong about so many things. There are lots of things that I believe that I'm sure will be totally wrong. It's a different kind of fear. But in terms of actual things that exist today that I am afraid of, no. I mean, from what I understand, you haven't been wrong about that much. I mean, I think the one article... No, no, no. The one article (laughs) that I think you were really embarrassed about was something called the Roaring Zeros or something like that. There's there's plenty of things I'm sure, uh, beliefs that I have that I'm sure I'm I'm wrong about that people in the future will look back and be embarrassed. My my descendants Mm. will be embarrassed by what I believe. (laughs) Well, fortunately, I think there's going to be enough other good stuff to sort of... (laughs) to sort of cover that stuff up. Kevin Kelly. Those were just a few of the writers I interviewed in 2023. You can listen to the full episodes on our website, designmattersmedia.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, I'll have excerpts from interviews with three award-winning female filmmakers I conducted in 2023. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.